1 Corinthians 9, verses 13 to 27. Verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not, my, not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Well, thank you, Ian, for reading. And let me add my welcome to Chalmers this morning, especially if you're uh, new here or just trying us out. You're very welcome among us. Um, I'm going to lead us in prayer before we turn to look at that passage together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would move by your Spirit to open our eyes to your Word and our hearts to your Word. We pray that you be growing in us the kind of love for others that the Lord Jesus had. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please keep that passage open. That will help a lot. And you'll see on the back of the notice sheet an outline of where we're going. And I've put a nice small question at the top of it. Here's the question. What do you want to do with the rest of your life? A nice small one this Sunday morning. What do you want to do with the rest of your life? I wonder if you've spent much time thinking about that. I guess some of us are just trying to get through the rest of the week or the rest of the day. We definitely don't have time for kind of grand life planning sessions or Uh, kind of working through our bucket list ambitions, but maybe the thought just occasionally sneaks in, you know, the really boring meeting at work or lecture, you just begin to think, I wonder what I do want to do with myself. Maybe you're lying in bed at night, up feeding a baby, 
What do I want to get out of my life? Both on the kind of big scale, the next 5, 10, 15 years, and just on the small scale, this term, this month, this week. There are times in life, kind of transition points, where I think that question hits us a bit more loudly, maybe as you start university. What do I want to do in my years here? Maybe as you end university, uh, what job on earth am I going to do? Um, When you end work, I think the start of retirement is a key moment to kind of think this through. Um, Or it may be uh, kind of just as you reflect on where your energy is currently going, with all the time and energy, strength, freedom, money I have, what do I want to do? And actually, in the history of humanity, I think our particular cultural time and place, we probably have more choice, most of us, on that question, than people have ever had. Extraordinary opportunities and choices and freedoms in our culture for travel, for information, for technology, for entertainment, for education, for wealth, for leisure, for charity... We just have such freedom, so many possibilities of what we could do with ourselves. And of course, in 21st century um, kind of secular Scotland, uh, there's a huge FOMO. Do you know what that stands for? Fear of missing out. A huge fear of missing out because there's this sense that maybe uh, this life is all there is. I only believe in what I can see. All I can see is a ticking clock. Huge fear of missing out. Now, in chapters 8 to 10 of 1 Corinthians, we are considering how Christians use their freedoms. So how do we think in a gospel-shaped way about the choices we make, where we're free to make a choice? Um, And if you asked Paul, who's writing here, the Apostle Paul, if you asked him kind of, well, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? What choices are you making? It's fair to say he's making some pretty strange choices, at least by the standards of Corinth and the church he's writing to here and 21st century Edinburgh today. He's behaving strangely. Just look at the start of chapter 9 on page 956. The start of chapter 9, verse 4. He knows that biblically, as a Christian, he has the right to eat and drink. He can choose what he eats. And yet, at the end of chapter 8, verse 13, just above, he's actually willing to be a vegetarian. He knows he can eat meat, but he is willing not to. Verse 5 of chapter 9, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? He knows that he can marry someone if he wants to. He can marry a Christian, but actually, he's choosing to be single in a culture where that was a far bigger deal than it is in ours. And then from verses 6 onwards, right into the start of our passage, he's talking about how he has the right, as a, as a um, Bible teacher and an apostle, he has the right to charge money for the work he's doing for the churches. And yet, uh, verse 15, I've made no use of any of these rights. Paul has chosen to be hungry, single, poor. Very strange. Very strange to this Corinthian church, because for them, they're trying to assert themselves. They're trying to enjoy their freedoms. If you looked at their bucket list, right at the top would be seize the day. Make the most of it. Enjoy what you can while you can. No one's going to look after number one, so I have to. Just look at verse 19, where we get what Paul would write at the top of his bucket list. Verse 19 Though I'm free from all, 
I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Paul's approach to life is to make himself a servant, to put himself out for others. He literally enslaves himself to the people around him. He fits around them in order to maximize the chances of offering them eternal life. Amazing that. You ask Paul, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? He says, whatever it would take so that more people could hear about Jesus. We look at the end of verse 22. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Now in a moment we're going to work through uh, those three paragraphs and kind of get into the details of what Paul's approach is. But before we start any of that, I just want us to step back and say, why is Paul telling us this? So that's his life philosophy. Why is he telling us this? And if you're in a small group or have been listening to this series, hopefully this won't be new to you, but just turn over the page to chapter 11, verse 1. This is the key to know how we're supposed to respond to chapter 9. So chapter 11, verse 1, where Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Why is Paul telling us about himself? Because he wants us to copy him. He wants us to live like he does, to think like he does. Be imitators of me. And that verse also answers where does he get this strange approach to life from? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Jesus, uh, sorry, Paul gets this directly from Jesus, just like we've been thinking about and singing about all morning. When Jesus came to earth, he did not turn up to be served. He didn't just turn up to kind of cash in his rights. He certainly deserved to be served. I mean, he deserves worship from every person on the planet. He's the creator. And yet, amazingly, he chose to serve us. Extraordinary. He came to lay down his life, to pay the penalty for us on the cross, to provide forgiveness and salvation for eternity. Extraordinary. And Paul himself knows that he's benefited from that. Jesus has served Paul. He's a a beneficiary of, of the amazing voluntary choice of Jesus to come down and save us. And when grace grips a human heart, when someone realizes, I'm not perfect, I never can be, but Jesus, the perfect one, died for me, when that grips someone's heart, it starts to change them from the inside out. It starts to turn them outwards in service. It starts to think of other people's welfare, not just my own, and other people's eternal welfare, not just my own. As verse 33, just above, chapter 10, verse 33, just above where we've read in 11.1, look at that. Paul tries to please everyone in everything he does, not seeking his own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Having experienced Jesus' grace and salvation, Paul wants to share it with many. Now let me say, if you're not a Christian here, if you're not yet a Christian, if you're just looking in, please don't hear this talk as if the message for you is to copy Jesus. We actually can't copy Jesus until we've let him serve us, until we've accepted his death in our place. You can try, but you'll, you'll find it impossibly difficult. We need him to change us first. But if you are a Christian, well, Paul's saying this is normal Christianity. 
I know it's tempting to, to look at Paul and think, wow, he's super keen. He's like mega apostle, slightly fanatical. Actually, it's just normal Christianity. It's just normal Christ-like living. So as we go through our three points, you'll see that each point, we see something about Paul that's, that's like Jesus and something for us to imitate. So let's dive in. Point one from chapter 9, verses 13 to 18. Um, Paul, like Jesus, didn't use his rights or his freedoms for himself. Paul, like Jesus, didn't use his rights or freedoms for himself. Now, as we've said, the specific right in question uh, in this little bit is, is whether Paul would get paid for the speaking he was doing. Um, it's totally warranted biblically. Look at verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So, He's due it. It's, it's not just a freedom, it's a right. He's, he's due it. But he's keen to point out that he doesn't want it. There's no bucket attached to this letter. Verse 15, I've, not, I've made no use of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. And he feels pretty strongly, I'd rather die than have, than have someone baby. Extraordinary. Um, now, if you uh, want to know what the boasting language is, you can ask me afterwards. We don't have time for that. But the point that's going on here is... Paul had to preach the gospel. Jesus had, had commissioned him to do that. Think Damascus Road. He just had to do that. No choice. But where he had a choice, where he had freedom, was whether he charged for it, whether he claimed a salary. And look at his choice, verse 18. What then's my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul's determined to offer the gospel free of charge. He did that particularly in Corinth because there, public speaking was big business. You could actually make quite a lot of money peddling whatever the latest ideas were. And he wanted to make it very clear that Christianity is not just another idea. He's not just in it for the money. Paul did it because he'd seen Jesus. He'd experienced forgiveness and salvation. That's what he wanted to get out. You know how people sometimes say of Boris Johnson, um, I don't know if it's true, but they sometimes say he only kind of preaches Brexit because he wants to further his career. It's what got him into, into number 10. Or whether that's true or not, Paul did not want anyone to say that about him and the gospel. He wanted people to know, I'm in it because it's true, not because I make money. And so he offered it free of charge. And incidentally, again, if you're looking into Christian things, it's worth noting that. The original eyewitnesses, the original preachers, gained nothing materially, financially, socially, in terms of life expectancy. They were killed for what they believed, beaten. But they were sure it was true. It was truly good news. So Paul's not just in it for the money. Why is he doing it? To present the gospel free. He turns down a salary, he turns down a paid job, lots of jobs he could do, but he chose to present the gospel free of charge. Now, what about us? We're supposed to imitate this, so what does it mean for us? Well, in our small groups, we'll have much more time to discuss all the different rights we have, not just the right to get paid, um, all the choices we have about leisure, how we fill our time, how we spend our money, um, who we spend time with. Let's just pause for a moment on this specific one that, that Paul's talking about, salaries, jobs. We spoke a bit about it last week with Robin, um, but since then I've had a couple of uh, questions I've picked up that people are asking. Um, uh, I guess one, one straightforward question is, is this saying everyone should give up their job and, and become a kind of full-time gospel worker? Well, no, obviously. 
But some people do do that because of passages like this. In fact, all the people in those countries we're praying for this month are driven by Paul's kind of attitude, Jesus' kind of attitude. So some will do that. But actually, they'll be paid for by all the people who don't do that. So it's not one size fits all, but all of us should be asking how can we um, freely offer the gospel widely. And a question that came up in one group I was in was kind of what about... um, what about vocational jobs where you're, you're kind of, you've already made your choices? So maybe you're a teacher or a doctor or a lawyer. You're kind of so far down the line, it's no longer kind of which job am I going to do in my life. I'm kind of in the groove. So is this pretty irrelevant to me? I've already made my decisions. Well, actually, whatever particular field you're in, I want to say there are still huge freedoms, huge choices to make in life, even in your working life. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, if you're a teacher... What might it look like to have the attitude of Paul and of Jesus? Well, I know that there are teachers here who, um, as part of their working week, they'll support a scripture union group at lunchtime, um, so that even though they can't necessarily proclaim Jesus easily in their lessons, actually Jesus does get proclaimed in their school. Or likewise, some will help enable Christian assemblies, or some will get on the committee that runs the carol service, so there can be some good content every so often. Others use their long holidays to to serve on summer camps or holiday clubs doing outreach. Others use their teaching skills at church or or with Big Night In, kind of events that church is running, so that young people can hear the gospel that way. Others are seeking to get to know their colleagues and and just witness lovingly to people in a very, very stressful and difficult environment. When particular job choices come up, promotions or switching of schools, they'll be asking the question, well, is it going to help gospel reach or hinder it? See, even with one particular job, that's just teaching, you could multiply the jobs. Even with one particular job, there's loads of questions to ask when it comes to what, how can I most help the gospel be freely offered. That's a Jesus-shaped mindset. One more example, uh, medicine. Uh, and this will be quick fire, so just brace yourself. But my, my aim here is to say, There's not only one kind of Christian way to live. There's not only one godly, keen way to be a a Christian doctor. So I know a young doctor uh, in Edinburgh who's taking a year out to serve at a church and to lead a short-term mission trip overseas because there's a kind of career break moment where you can take that. I know another friend who works as a GP. um, He works part-time, actually, three days a week as a GP so that he and his wife can um, help with a church plant in a deprived area. And basically, it's his salary that keeps that church running. Another doctor friend um, was trying to decide whether to take a particular role, but the huge commute meant that it would be hard to um, engage in church or in outreach. Um, They'd have no energy left for getting to know any of their colleagues, no time. Another one does work really long shifts um, so that they can be serving in a small group. They start particularly early the night uh, that they're going to be involved in their uh, small group. But it's not just saving time for church. It's actually in the workplace. Another doctor I know um, uh, took on a senior partner role so they could change the dynamic inside their practice. So actually there were opportunities for their colleagues to hear about Jesus. There's no one size fits all. But all of those are examples, echoes of Jesus. They're all picking up that willingness not to use my rights at work just for myself, but to get the gospel out. Um, likewise, when a promotion possibility comes along or when you're choosing 
those of you who are students, when you're choosing between two jobs and one's got a bigger salary, um, it's not necessarily the Christian thing to take the smaller salary. It might actually mean you can give more. Although, if you want to protect yourself, one of the best advices, bits of advice on that I ever got from a senior banker, actually, in London, was um, uh, if you really want to test your heart, set your budget before you choose your salary and then give everything above your budget. It really helps when promotions start coming around the corner. He was the calmest person in the office at bonus time. On to, the, on to point two, though. So that's kind of jobs and salaries. And again, we could, we could talk a lot more, and I hope we will, in small groups and friendships about that. Um, but on to point two. Paul, like Jesus, voluntarily enslaved himself to other people's cultures. This is verses 19 to 22. Paul, like Jesus, voluntarily enslaved himself to other people's cultures. The point comes straight out of verse 19. Though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant, literally a slave to all, that I might win more of them. It's a really striking verse, that. Remember, this whole section is about freedom. The chapter began with the words, chapter 9, verse 1, am I not free? And the answer was, yes, actually, I am free, says Paul. I'm free. I know I'm free. I know the Bible. I know the Bible gives me freedom, freedom of what to eat, freedom of what to wear, freedom of what to do. And yet, Paul, who knows he's free from all, verse 19, voluntarily enslaves himself to others. What's he enslaving himself to? Well, other people's cultures, different sorts of cultures, different sorts of people, he gets alongside them wherever they are, whoever they are, whether they're like him or not. Just have a look at it, verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. Here's the first group. Um, It's the background Paul had come from. Um, uh, He grew up and and, um, excelled, actually, within a Jewish community. But it was now quite hostile to him often. But nevertheless, he would still get alongside them. And he'd keep the Jewish law in food, in dress, in activity. He'd pay money sometimes to to keep particular vows. And he even, when he and Timothy were going to a particular um, context... I even agreed to get Timothy circumcised so as not to cause offence. Now, it's really important. You don't need to be circumcised to be part of God's people. Galatians says that. So it wasn't that he needed to be, but he chose to be so as not to cause offence, to get, to get alongside that community. Extraordinary lengths they went to. But it wasn't just Jewish people, verse 21, uh, to Gentiles, to pagans, to non-Jews, verse 20, 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So you might find Paul in the synagogue on Saturday, and then at the Areopagus debating pagan philosophers on Monday. He didn't keep himself to one type of person, his type of person. He did everything he could to cross cultural barriers. It's not that he had no limits. Notice he puts in brackets there, he wasn't outside the law of Christ. So he, he, he wouldn't do something that wasn't biblical, he wouldn't sin. But up to that point, he genuinely would do whatever he could to get alongside people. You could say in some ways Paul was a chameleon. He was willing to eat vegetables one day, kosher the next day, pork the next day. And I'm pretty sure he didn't enjoy all of those equally. Why? What drove this strange lifestyle, this slavery to other people's cultures? Well, I hope you heard the repeated refrain all the way through these verses. Let me read it again. 
Verse 19, why does he do this? Verse 19, that I might win more of them. Verse 20, why does he act like a Jew? That I might win those under the law. Verse 21, why does he operate like a Gentile out there in the Gentile world? That I might win those outside the law. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Paul wants people saved. That's his bottom line. That's what drives him. Drives him to adjust his lifestyle, his leisure time, his choices, his activities, his speech, his clothing, his food. He'll do anything he can, biblically, to get a hearing that reaches different types of people for the gospel. And it is radical. Do you see this kind of stuff? The first point was about like, the big choices, big choices of life. What job do I do? Where do I live? Where can I go so that I can help a, a church that's reaching out? Those are big kind of 5, 10, 20-year plans, but it's also the day-by-day, the weekly, daily choices, what I do with hobbies, sports, who do I relate to at work or around where I live. Paul did everything he could. And of course, that is an echo of Jesus. The Lord Jesus, God the Son, he didn't just sit in heaven. He didn't just sit there waiting in all the pleasure and praise and glory and safety of heaven, thinking, well, maybe people will come in. They never would. So he got off his throne, took on flesh, put on some sandals, and suffered the massive indignity of enslaving himself to people he made, of serving people who were rejecting his Father in heaven, eating with them. He stepped over barriers. And Paul was reached by Jesus' amazing grace and so was determined that it would reach beyond him. Now, we'll talk in a moment about some examples of what this looks like. Uh, But I do just want to tackle a couple of kind of objections or questions that might come up about this. Um, Here's one of them. Why are we always talking about evangelism at Chalmers? And if you feel like that, one or two um, sometimes do. Why are we kind of banging on again about sharing the gospel with people? Good question. After all, doesn't the New Testament encourage us to love our neighbours in all sorts of ways? Um, shouldn't we be caring for those who have physical needs, financial needs, those who are suffering and struggling in society? Well, yes, we are to love our neighbours. But it is striking, when we keep coming back to evangelism, it's not particularly because... That's the hobby horse I'm on, or Robin is on. It's that the passages we're studying are just saying it. We started this this section with love, 8 verse 1. Love is what matters, not knowledge. How does love cash out for Paul, or for Jesus actually? Well, loving people with eternal eyes, wanting them saved. Sharing not just life, but the gospel. And therefore, we must not rule out any group of people, rich or poor, marginalized in any way, any race, any background, any worldview, any lifestyle. Because everyone needs this solution. That's the first objection. Why so much about evangelism? Well, it drove Paul. It drove the Lord Jesus, actually. Second objection, isn't it a bit unloving or mechanical to talk about winning people? Like all this kind of strategic, try and make friends with people so that you can share the gospel. Like, doesn't that just sound pretty mechanical, pretty kind of, you've just got targets, you're just trying to get converts? Another good question. 
But actually, Paul is willing to use that language. In his love, just like the Lord Jesus, he is willing to be thought through, to be strategic about how he can maximize the chance of people hearing about Jesus. That's not unloving, it's actually the opposite. It is truly loving. Because he knows that human beings without the Lord Jesus and his forgiveness are in desperate trouble. I was in a student Bible study this week and, and they were talking about whether they should just hang out with Christian friends or whether they should get to know some folks who aren't Christians, uh, some of their course mates and uh, other, other kind of groups, hang out with the sports clubs or whatever. Um, it's much easier just to stay with people just like yourself. Much easier, especially in our culture increasingly. But actually, love is what will push people out with this kind of attitude to become all things to all men, to take an interest in others, to meet them where they are. It's okay to target people with love. One final response to this is, uh, is to say, this just makes me feel guilty. All this talk of evangelism, whether, whether it was Acts, where Jesus told us it, or 1 Corinthians, where Jesus, through his apostle, is telling us it, it it's just making me feel more guilty because I keep hearing it and I keep not changing and that gap is making me feel really bad. I find it too scary, genuinely terrifying. I, I, I wouldn't know where to start and I'm still not even sure I want to start. And so each time I hear the challenge, it's just loading me down with guilt. First off, let me say you're not the only person who might feel like that. I've, I've heard that kind of comment from people who've been Christians for a few months and for a few decades. Secondly, I want us to clock that this passage, the kind of tone of this passage is not guilt at all. Paul wants us to copy him, but what drives him is not a feeling of, I really ought to do this. Kind of, they said it up the front. People are putting pressure on me. I really must do it. I feel guilty not to. No, it's not for Paul a sense of obligation. Remember, he's voluntarily doing this. He's choosing to do this. He wants to do this. He longs to share eternity with more of his friends and his neighbors, his, uh, the people he passes on the street. He's not driven by guilt or pressure, but by the gospel, his desire to offer the gospel. And I'm praying that will more and more characterize our church family, not that we're bullied into being outward-looking, pressurized, whether from up here or from others chivying us, but just in genuine compassion, in genuine excitement, that actually some people could be saved that we turn outwards. Notice verse 22. It's really striking. Not, we know not everyone's going to like this. Verse 22. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save... What would you expect the word to be? Well, surely all. But no, Paul's realistic, that I might save some. Not everyone's going to like it. Um, Paul, in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, he describes when he came to preach the gospel in Corinth, he was trembling says he came in weakness and trembling. He was scared. He sometimes got a bad reaction. But nevertheless, he so wanted people to hear about Jesus that he pushed through anyway. What does that look like for us in practice? Well, um, <laughs> we could be here for another 20 minutes. Don't worry, we're not going to be. I'll just give some initial indications. And I hope we will keep talking about this. Talk about it in small groups. We'll be talking about it in our central training together in November. We've got three nights together as our whole church family. Um, but first off, just recognize the mindset shift. That's the first practical step. You know how in chapter 8 we said, 
when we come to make choices and use our freedom, do we even think about the effect it might have on another Christian, a weaker Christian? That's one important thing as we use our freedom in this world. But here's another thing. Do we think about the choices we make in terms of, will it help me reach people? All sorts of different types of people. There's a mindset shift, and I really hope that together uh, we can be imaginative in how we go about this. But even more to the nitty-gritty, what does it look like? Well, for some of us, it does mean breaking out of our Christian social bubble. And I say this to myself. In Edinburgh, you could count the number of kind of really um, uh, deep Christian, non-Christian friendships I have on one hand. It's going to be hard for them to hear the gospel from me um, if I don't know them at all. And so for some of us, it will mean just thinking imaginatively, how do I meet people who aren't Christians? How can I love the people around me on my street? How can I get to know people at work? Or what could I take up that would enable chances to meet um, folks? I know a number here have started um, going to sports clubs or book groups or, or um, uh, having neighbours around for dinner or trying to chat to, to folk at, at nursery or whatever. For some of us, that will be the step forward. Um, and please, let's not rule people out just because they're not our type. People might be posher than us, They might be rougher than us. They might have a different race or religion or lifestyle or worldview. I still remember the day, actually, when I was seven. It was the first time I'd ever noticed multiculturalism when I was seven. Uh, As a boy on the street I played with, we rode bikes, and I once went around to his house, and his his family were from Pakistan. And I'd I'd never been in a house like it. Um, The smell, the spices, the curries that were being, the curry that was being cooked, completely different. The decor... The language that was being spoken in the, in the kitchen, um, everything was different. And, uh, you know, my instinct as a seven-year-old was just to want to go back to where my family was, to the food I recognized, to the language and the culture that I was familiar with. That can be a human heart instinct, but Paul did not have that instinct, or at least he, he worked against that instinct in his life. Same with the Lord Jesus. He served all sorts of people, willingness to cross boundaries. I think um, some of us are in moments of life where there's just massive opportunities. So if you're a fresher, massive opportunities. Everyone wants to make friends. Um, If you're kind of young kids, that can be a big opportunity, antenatal classes or um, or kind of mutual sympathy at the, the nursery gate about everyone being ill or whatever. Um, as life goes on, it gets a bit harder, doesn't it, to kind of make friendships, to break out of the friendships you're, you're in and, and meet other people. Um, but actually, that's true of other people too. So, so there's actually a massive pool of people who are really lonely. One of our ministry associates this week was chatting to a lady at a bus stop, an older lady whose life was just really lonely. It'd be great to think imaginatively about how we could reach out to those generations as a church family. Um, so for some of us, it's the kind of actually making contact with people. There'll be others of us, though, who say, oh, no, I can't take on another hobby or a sports club or another group of people because I'm absolutely maxed out socially. Like, my life is already full of people, full of people at work, full of people uh, with my neighbours, my friends, my old uni friends, my um, church and small group. I'm just absolutely rammed. To which I guess the challenge for us is how in those relationships do we share the gospel? How can we... How can we provide um, ways that there might be chances to speak about Jesus and his good news. Um, 
that might mean occasionally sacrificing some of our comforts and privileges. I've come to realize I can't watch the entirety of the World Cup if I'm going <laughs> to rugby World Cup, if I'm going to be meeting people and getting out there and talking to people. Um, sometimes, though, we can combine activities. It is, it is actually um, biblically allowed to mix up Christian friends and people who aren't Christians. That's possible um, and a good thing. Uh, it might be just that we deepen some of our existing friendships. Um, I remember a, a guy in London, um, a city worker, who he was just really frustrated because he, he'd heard this kind of talk and he, he wanted to tell people about Jesus and what he believed. And he, he found it just never came up at work. Um, turns out that a city bank quite often not many people ask, why did Jesus die? Or tell me about the cross. Uh, and he could, he could see year after year this was never going to change. Um, so he, he thought to himself and prayed, and he came up with the idea of taking a different colleague out to lunch each week, his treat. He booked a, a kind of one slot in his diary and just took someone out each time um, on rotation. He started again once he'd been through them all. And do you know what happened? Over time, Whenever someone had a real crisis in life or something big they needed someone to talk about, he became the go-to guy because there were actual friendships there. And in time, a couple of them were so curious about why he did this that they started reading the Bible with him. It's a great idea. And I'd love us to have more um, imaginative ideas of how we deepen friendships or or connections. for some of us, it will be that we have long-standing friendships with people who aren't Christians, and we've never told them about Jesus and wouldn't know where to start. In fact, I talked to someone on Monday who was wondering about asking a friend of his from back home, a student, um, whether to read the Bible but <laughs> together um, in a kind of, I've never, I've never taught you about what I believe. Would you like to look at, look at uh, one of the historical accounts of Jesus? And the thing that was holding him back was he was thinking, well, what if my friend doesn't want to be my friend anymore afterwards. Um, to which, as we talked about it, we both realized, look, if you've been friends that long, probably the worst that's going to happen is he says no, there's a slightly awkward two minutes, and then you just carry on. And hopefully he will be um, getting to that this Christmas. Now, they're all small steps, and for each of us it will be different, a kind of different step forward for each person, but I'd love us to be thinking about this, how Paul voluntarily enslaved himself to other people's cultures. Um, And if you're sitting there thinking, oh dear, this sounds a bit like hard work, like this is going to take more energy, more time, more thought, I don't know much of that anyway, if it feels like it's going to be hard work, I think actually that's the right reaction, because just look at how Paul finishes the passage, verse 23 onwards. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel, verse 23, that I may share with them in its blessings. And then he goes on to give an image of the Christian life. And I don't know what your kind of picture of what the Christian life would be like, but here's Paul's. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. We, an imperishable I don't run aimlessly, I'm, I'm not boxing as one beating the air, but I discipline my body, keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself will be disqualified. It's a great moment in the year to be uh, looking at that verse because the World Championships Athletics is going on, the Rugby World Cup's obviously going on. We're seeing people who have disciplined themselves. They've shaped their, their time, their, their diaries, their, their um, diets, their lifestyles, put a huge amount of effort into 
trying to win a little bit of gold on a string that only one out of the crowd will win. Apparently in the Corinthian games, what you won was um, some wilted celery in a kind of wreath that they put on your head. People put a lot of energy into winning one of those. Actually, Paul has eternity on his mind. He knows that what's possible as he trains himself and works hard to enable this kind of gospel-centered lifestyle, what's possible is that some could be saved for eternity, that he could share in all eternity with other people who he helped get there. If you ask Paul, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? That would be it. He'd love to help people get saved for eternity. And let me say, as a final word before we pray, I'm aware for some here who are uh, going through periods of real sickness or suffering or exhaustion, you may listen to all that and think, I've got, I've, I've got no choices, I've got no energy, I'm, I'm a long way from an athlete. And there's some truth in that. Sometimes in our lives as Christians, we, Jessie and I find this with her, with her illness, sometimes life does shrink right down. There's usually one or two people you will see. And actually the witness of a Christian in that kind of difficulty, the way we suffer, can be a huge witness to the gospel. Let me close this in prayer.